and welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Always happy to have you. Um, Counterpunch Plus, that's what I've been plugging for months now. That's what I'm going to plug again. That is our subscription section. It has replaced our print magazine, our dearly departed print magazine, which was printed on ever so many sheets of paper over almost three decades. But times have changed. Everything has digitized. And unfortunately, the print magazine is no more. But Counterpunch Plus is here to fill all of your Counterpunch needs. We have all of the great content that was always in the print magazine, all of the columns, Jeff Sinclair, Alexander Coburn's old work going back many, many years, of course, all of the great Great contributors over the years. Plus, we have exclusive content in Counterpunch Plus that you literally will not find anywhere else. It's not on anyone's Substack. It's not on anyone's Patreon. It is only on Counterpunch Plus. Let me give you just a very quick sample of some of the content we have up there right now. Anna Bus with original reporting on Bolsonaro versus the indigenous leaders in Brazil over his handling of COVID. Excellent in-depth analysis there. Ed Rampell's really, really great a review of the new documentary about Stalin's state funeral in Soviet Union in 1953. Really interesting there. T.J. Coles on a history of the CIA in the Congo. Stan Cox on Biden's climate plans or lack thereof and so much more. Uh, Counterpunch Plus is the place to go. Get your subscription there. It helps keep the lights on. It helps keep us going. So please do consider that. Now, with that out of the way, I want to welcome my guest onto the show today. This is somebody whose work is, well, it's unparalleled. She's second to none as far as agitators go, as far as the kind of anti-war activism that we so love here at Counterpunch. It's Medea Benjamin. Medea is the co-founder of the anti-war peace organization Code Pink, which we all know and love. Codepink.org is the website, at Medea Benjamin on Twitter. Medea, welcome to Counterpunch. Hey, Eric. Thanks so much. Nice to be with you. Nice to talk with you. Thank you so much for all the great work you've done over the years. Uh, many of us who, of course, are on the left and doing anti-war work, we certainly know those pink shirts and we certainly know all of the great interventions you all have done. So with that said, let's talk a little bit about Biden. Biden's first hundred days is the uh, sort of benchmark we just recently passed. I want to just ask you broadly, and this is sort of my standard opener for the last several months on this show, but how do you assess Biden's first hundred days and this very interesting period of transition from Trump to Biden? Well, first, let me give a couple of the positive things that uh, I feel are uh, on the foreign policy horizon, uh, some things that didn't happen under the Trump administration, like extending the START treaty with Russia for another five years, rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement, rejoining the World a health organization, uh, lifting the sanctions that Trump had imposed on the international criminal court officials, uh, restoring some of the aid to the Palestinians, uh, lifting the Muslim ban. Uh, and while Trump did negotiate the withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan, in fact, he was going to have them leave by May 1st, um, it is positive that Biden is calling for the troops to be removed. So those are those are some of the good things. Um, the on the negative side, well, we can spend a whole hour talking about that. <laughs> um, where should we start? Uh, perhaps we could talk about the fact that the whole overall 
worldview of Biden and most of the people he's brought into his administration is that the U.S. should be at the head of the table dictating to the rest of the world how things should run. Uh, This idea that the U.S. is back uh, and that we are um, not only joining some of these international groups, but Uh, pushing for the uh, NATO alliance to be stronger. Um, It's really pushing for the U.S. to be back uh, in in the role of of running things. And as part of that is this huge budget for national security. Uh, We see that while Trump... uh, Uh, kept saying, oh, I inherited this mess of Obama where he decimated the the troops and he was going to build things up. Well, he certainly did. And now Biden comes in and instead of saying, well, I'm going to bring the troops back from Afghanistan, I'm going to end the endless wars, and I'm going to give the American people a peace dividend because we need that money for so many other things, he's gone ahead and introduced a proposed budget that is actually an increase of $13 billion over Trump's last budget. So that's one place where we could start. Isn't it interesting just to go off of that point about the military budget? I think this is sort of illustrates one of the key differences between Trump and Biden is that Biden will go ahead and increase the military budget. He just won't appoint a Raytheon lobbyist to run the Pentagon. And so it's sort of the uh, pu- more public relations savvy form of imperial plunder. Well, except that he did appoint a Raytheon lobbyist. Lloyd Austin. Well, not a lobbyist on the board. <laughs> if there's, I guess there's a little a slight difference. <laughs> a career military person who certainly was enthralled to the military industrial complex. But I mean to say this sort of nakedly transparent uh, ushering in of lobbyists, which was one of the abhorrent things about the Trump administration that liberals hated so much was just how nakedly criminal it appeared. Well, also, when he talked about the Pentagon budget, he gra- he bragged about how much he was increasing it, whereas Biden kind of slipped it in and acted like it wasn't really an increase. In fact, you hear a lot of Democrats saying, well, it was really just a, a adjustment for inflation. It really wasn't an increase. Uh, it was an increase. And uh, there should have been a decrease. In fact, he should have gone back to where things stood at the time of Obama, which would be $100 billion less than the $753 billion that he is proposing. So yeah, there's a, a difference in uh, kind of the attitude, the the public uh, uh, stance on this, uh, but uh, you scratch beneath the surface and it's very much the same in terms of taking our tax dollars and handing it over to the Pentagon. And even during a time of a pandemic, when you would think that it was understood by the American public that the greatest national security threats are not things that the Pentagon can save us from, uh, whether it's the pandemic or climate issues or inequality or uh, uh, nationalism, uh, racists here at home, uh, these are nothing that that can be solved through Uh, military solutions, but yet we have a 
by the administration that continues on this trajectory. And as part of that increase in the Pentagon budget is to continue this ridiculous policy of modernizing our nuclear weapons. And Eric, you know, it's it's beyond hypocrisy at a time when we're negotiating with the Iranians to say, you know, you can't dare have a nuclear weapon and we're going to make sure you have um, the most stringent inspections that have ever been devised and on and on. And the U.S. isn't even uh, trying to um, uh, to uh, implement its part of the obligations under the uh, non-proliferation treaty, which is to get rid of your nuclear weapons, and certainly not the new UN treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons that 50 countries have just uh, ratified. Um, so here we are, and it's probably somewhere between 30 and $50 billion dollars in this budget, but it's part of a $1.7 trillion modernization plan. Uh, And this is to build weapons that, God forbid, we should ever use them, you know, weapons that we never want to use when we have nuclear weapons that could destroy the world so many times over to be spending $1.7 trillion on this modernization plan that was really started under Obama continued under Trump. And now, unless we're able to do something about it, it looks like Biden will continue that trajectory. And speaking of trajectories being continued by the Biden administration, one of the dangerous and troubling ones is the trajectory of the rhetoric against China. Uh, of course, uh, the Obama administration famously launched its uh, time in office with the so-called pivot to Asia, making Asia a centerpiece of its foreign policy as a shift away from the Middle East of the Bush administration. And here we are just uh, you know, a decade and a half later, less than that, and uh, we have people literally talking about going to war with China. So can you talk a little bit about uh, Trump to Biden and, well, let's say the lack of a climb down on this rhetoric over China. Well, that's right. And this uh, also is uh, uh, reflects the differences that we've talked about in terms of tone. While you don't have Biden talking about the China flu and uh, uh, using that kind of ridiculous um, uh, uh, anti-China rhetoric, you do have Um, the same kind of uh, incendiary policies, uh, the U.S. sending warships into the South China Sea uh, and uh, uh, being all uh, uh, so upset that uh, China is trying to control the South China Sea instead of the U.S. Um, You also have Uh, the justification for that very Pentagon budget that we just talked about is because China is our greatest, quote, adversary, and we have to build all these new high-tech weapons uh, in order to confront China. So, uh, and it's not just China, it's also Russia increasing the troop deployments on Russia's western border, uh, and certainly that is one difference between uh, Trump and Biden in that Trump was uh, so uh, much um, closer to Putin and Biden is so anti-Putin, anti-Russia. But the two 
uh, Cold Wars heating up with both China and Russia are against nuclear states, um, uh, huge countries with big militaries. And it is uh, very dangerous and very scary to see the Biden administration uh, building up this kind of um, uh, idea among the American public that China and to a lesser extent, but also Russia are our enemies and that we have to be prepared for war against them. Well, and we also see it reflected in some of the, uh, let's call it imperial strategizing that goes on in the halls of power in Washington, because it does seem that there's a something of a consensus that the Trump administration really was not an able steward of the empire in all ways that you know it really needed to be. Places like Africa, where U.S. has lost some of its influence to countries like Turkey and China and Russia and others, certainly uh, also the case in Latin America and elsewhere. So so there's something to be said for the ruling class seeing Trump as something of an incompetent steward of the empire. Yes, uh, and yet with the Biden administration coming in, you would think there would be some major changes in policy uh, when it comes to uh, the Trump administration being so close to the Saudis and getting the U.S. involved in the war in Yemen. Uh, many of us were. Uh, quite excited that Biden had talked a different line, talked about Saudi Arabia as a pariah state, and initially put a halt on weapon sales to both Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. And lo and behold, after not much time, those uh, that halt was lifted. And so it looks like Biden has gone back on his campaign promise of having a different relationship with the Saudis. Um, and he did promise that the U.S. would no longer be involved in the war in Yemen. And uh, he has pulled back on some aspects of that, but the U.S. is still involved in the war in Yemen. The one thing that uh, he has done differently is the getting back in talks with Iran about going back into the nuclear deal. But I'm so surprised, Eric, because I thought this was something that he was going to do like in day one or week one, you know, saying, OK, we're going back into the WTO and we're going back into the START talks and we're going a uh, treaty and we're going back into the Iran nuclear deal. And it, he, he should have. And it would have been so much easier had he done that. Instead, he waffled, waited, changed policies, allowed the opponents of the Iran nuclear deal to organize. And now we're in a very difficult situation when it comes to Iran. Absolutely. And we can get more into Iran in a minute, although I think that there are several factors at play there. And the U.S. calculus probably taking into account that Iran has presidential elections in about a month or so. And, uh, you know, anyway, let's talk about that in a second. I want to just finish up on uh, Trump and Biden and managing the empire, because I do think that this is a critical question as we head into what seems to be, well, at least for some people, a, a return to some sense of stability. Uh, although from another perspective, it might be a very dangerous period. How should we, uh, as you know, uh, actors living through this moment, how should we understand this history that we're living through? Is this a sea change in the nature of of uh, the U.S. empire as we understood it, say, post-World War II till very recently? 
Well, I think the reality is that the world has changed and that uh, China is now a major player and has more influence in many places around the world than the United States does anymore. It's uh, fascinating that China is the number one trading partner of, of Latin America, our own backyard. Uh, and so the world has changed and there are different blocks out there and the U.S. doesn't have the same ability to uh, dictate policies around the world as it did at other times. And yet I don't think the Biden administration quite uh, comprehends that and wants to go back to uh, the good old days of, of U.S. running the empire with its allies around the world. Um, and so, yes, Trump was very erratic, uh, couldn't control things the way uh, many of the establishment people in Washington would like them to be, you know, having uh, meetings with uh, Kim Jong-un and uh, calling him his best friend, but then not being able to follow through with any policy change. Um, many, many uh, erratic parts of the Trump administration, I think people thought would be taken care of if Biden came back into power with uh, the more, quote, adults in the room. And yet, when you have a world that is not a unipolar world anymore, uh, I think it, it makes for some huge contradictions. Contradictions, to be sure, and in, one, and, and in some sense, perhaps even makes it more dangerous, uh, more unpredictable. I think that one of the things that we've learned in the last few years is that uh, the United States is uh, not as predictable as maybe it used to be. Uh, certainly, we, we, we can talk all day long about the U.S. and its declining power and this and that, and yet we pull up the news of, you know, two hours ago and the U.S. is firing warning shots at Iranian ships in the Strait of Hormuz. So it's not exactly like... Uh, uh, you know, a power fading away. Well, no, because you still have this uh, huge uh, military. How many? Uh, 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 how much do we want to add to that? Industrial, congressional, uh, national security think tank, blah 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 complex, and they uh, make their living on conflict, and they are always stirring up some kind of conflict. I mean, I, I. Uh, can't stand when I see this uh, regurgitation uh, of the same people that we hear over and over again who are supposed to be our foreign policy experts. And all they really do is go from one disaster to another of having gotten us into wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, failed wars, people, uh, the older ones having been going back to the times of uh, the Vietnam War. Uh, and yet their their whole uh, worldview and their living is around um, militarism and U.S. interventionism, and they're not going to give that up easily. And uh, Biden brought a lot of them into his administration, but um, they're, they, they just exist, and they're a huge lobby group. Uh, and in many ways, I think Congress is more conservative than the Biden administration. And so any uh, positive changes that might come out of the administration from time to time are then uh, uh, pushed back by the lobby groups, by the Congress itself, and the American people who don't really care about foreign policy issues uh, barely get to weigh in on these. 
Well, you sort of preempted my my last question here before we head to the break, and that is to what extent are any of these issues even in the public discourse? I mean, I know, you know, for those of us who do anti-war activism and, and, and anti-imperialist work and so forth, obviously these are f- at the forefront of our thinking and of our worldview. But for your average typical American, I mean, do is, is there a way to even break through all of the media noise and confront them with the reality of what the United States does around the world? It's very hard. You know, I thought, well, during the Trump years, there was just so much focus on Trump, 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 that maybe, you know, with Biden, now we may be able to uh, see some openings and discussing some of what's going on in the world. But if you turn on the cable news, you won't, you'll barely find uh, what's happening in Palestine now. You'll, you'll barely find uh, what's happening in anywhere around the world because it's so focused on domestic politics and it's so partisan. Um, it's very hard to break through that. And then when you see uh, these polls on what Americans care about, foreign policy is like at the bottom of the heap. So it's a vicious circle when you have a media that doesn't talk about these issues. And when they do, it's often in the terms that, that are, that are uh, what we've been talking about, how the United States is the good country that's trying to bring peace and stability to the rest of the world. Um, and, uh, and with so many issues that are bread and butter issues to Americans, especially during a pandemic, uh, economic uh, uh, issues at the forefront, race issues. Um, it's uh, pretty hard to break through on these foreign policy issues. And I think, as you said, those of us who care about these are a very small minority of the population. Well, I said that was going to be my last question before the break, but I lied. Here's my last question for you. Uh, in 2008 and in the lead up to 2008, um, there was a lot of talk about what Obama represented. And you know, the phrase that always stuck out to me, the one that I always thought of was that Obama really did represent a facelift for imperialism after the disastrous Bush years and Iraq and all the quagmire and all of the rest of that. And he really was, in a sense, kind of a, a, a new face for imperialism one to kind of bring it into its uh, post-Bush years. And so my question is, what exactly is Biden? I'm not sure that he's so much a facelift for imperialism after after Trump, but he's definitely something. <laughs> well, I think he's put forward by uh, the media that is in favor of him as, as somebody who's going to bring back more uh, stability and uh, increase the U.S., uh, status on the world scene, um, and yet, um, a- a- and uh, for those who are part of the foreign policy establishment, um, that means things like uh, strengthening the alliances with NATO uh, and with other countries uh, to be able to um, strengthen U.S. influence around the world. But, uh, you know, we said before the world has changed. So I think it's uh, uh, probably an attempt to go back to the Obama status quo, um, but with some major differences in, in how the world has evolved since the time of Obama. 
Boy, it all it all sounds and feels very Weimar to me. But uh, let's take a quick break. <laughs> On the other side of the break, we'll continue with, uh, with Medea Benjamin. Again, you should be supporting Code Pink. It is one of the most important, if not the most important, activist organization we have. CodePink.org is the website. Stick with us. Listen to the music. We'll be right back. chatting with Medea Benjamin here on Counterpunch Radio. Go to the website codepink.org, follow Medea and Code Pink on Twitter. Uh, so Medea, we were talking before the break about, well, I mean, I guess trying to get a sense of what this period is. And I keep asking every guest for the last couple of months about that question, because I'm not so sure we know exactly what this period that we're living through is. But let's get into some of this, some of the specifics here. I mentioned before the break about uh, some of the latest news in Iran. Again, the U.S. Navy is menacing Iran uh, in the Persian Gulf near the Strait of Hormuz. Uh, what is the latest on the U.S. and its engagement with Iran? Obviously, the Biden, uh, well, Biden as the uh, during the campaign promised a sort of return to the nuclear deal, a return to normalcy. Where do we actually stand with Iran, uh, given that that country is headed into its own presidential elections in a few weeks? Well, we stand at a very difficult moment because the Biden administration uh, uh, waited so long to get involved in these negotiations that uh, the elections are coming up in Iran. And even before the elections, they only have like a one month period for the campaigning, but that month is coming up right now. 
Uh, and during that month, there's going to be a lot of hardliners who are saying, you know, why should look at, at the failure of uh, Rouhani and Foreign Minister Zarif uh, in talking to the West and coming up with this deal that was uh, that was undone and look at the sanctions and what it's done to our economy. And they're not going to want to get back into that nuclear deal. Uh, there's uh, also the opponents who've had a chance in the United States to build up, and that includes uh, lobby groups like the Israeli lobby group, APAC. Uh, it includes the hawks inside the Republican Party, as well as the Democratic Party, who are trying to pass legislation that it would make it very difficult uh, for the Biden administration to get back into this deal without going to co Congress. Um, it gives um, a chance to the opponents like Israel itself. Um, so I, I think the Biden administration has made a, a huge mistake uh, at waiting so long. And now we don't know. I think it's the fourth round that's happening now of the talks in Vienna. And it could come out any day with a deal, which would be wonderful. Uh, and they could... Uh, run into too many hurdles about what sanctions the U.S. is willing to lift or not, what part of the uh, increase in the uh, number and types of centrifuges that the Iranians are doing, are they willing to go back on? And these snags could take too long, and then we're past the window of opportunity. So I think it's, uh, it's un the, it, 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 there's a, a period of great uncertainty right now. And what do you think was really behind the U.S. dragging his feet? I mean, is this a personality thing like Tony Blinken and his ideological sort of you know, worldview? Or is there a more pragmatic reason, you think? Uh, I think they were focused on the domestic issues, on COVID, uh, the attention. I mean, uh, rightly so, had to be on that. But... Uh, they were already getting people in the administration. Of course, they knew during the whole campaign uh, and the period between winning and taking uh, power in the White House that this was going to be a key issue. Um, so you, maybe there were people in the administration that had differences, some thinking that if we go slow, uh, we can get more leverage because the sanctions are really hurting, especially now during this pandemic. Uh, and uh, maybe losing time between uh, trying to uh, figure out who within the administration was going to get the key positions. And uh, they have some very good people like Rob Malley, who uh, we were uh, pleasantly surprised when he was appointed as the envoy. Uh, but there are other people in the administration who are uh, not as um, prone to uh, going quickly into talk. So I think there was a, a combination of issues, um, mostly a lack of focus. And one of the interesting side effects of that lack of focus on uh, Iran and, well, of, of the general warmongering against Iran, I guess, for decades and certainly in recent years, has been that Iran has uh, really been pushed, maybe pushed and pulled in a sense, into a much closer alignment with China. Recently, uh, Iran and China signed a massive cooperation deal that 
could mean potentially a lot of different things, but certainly it means at least at, at the very least a sort of strategic orientation towards each other. So at the very same time that the U.S. seems to be dragging its feet with Iran, it looks like China is scooping up a new ally. What do you think? You know, it's so interesting, Eric. I've been to Iran several times and there is such a pro-Western, pro-American sentiment among a lot of the Iranian people and among so many of the business people that I've met in Iran. They really want to do business with the United States. And when the Obama administration had uh, made the deal and it looked like U.S. businesses were going to have an opportunity to trade with Iran, uh, they were ready with multi-billion dollar deals, uh, whether it was to sell uh, Boeing airplanes or it was oil companies or it was car dealers or, you know, all kinds of uh, potential huge business because Iran is a big country of 80 million people and there's a lot of pent up a demand for trade. And, uh, and yet um, to have the Trump administration uh, wipe that all off the table. And I find it so interesting that the businesses haven't been uh, the ones in the forefront that have been lobbying and clamoring to get back into Iran. And as you say, in the meantime, uh, Iran didn't have much choice in who they could trade with. Even trading with the West was uh, impossible for the most part because U.S. sanctions are extraterritorial. And it was only uh, the Chinese and uh, maybe the Iraqis and a huge underground economy uh, that grew up, a black market economy, that kept Iran afloat. And so U.S. businesses have really been sidelined uh, and the, um, the, the Chinese do have a, a very large agreement with Iran. However, if the U.S. did go back into the deal and the sanctions were lifted, I think we would see a lot of U.S. companies and certainly a lot of uh, European uh, companies immediately do business. Um, let's remember that there is a huge Iranian-American community and a lot of them are business people who would like to be doing uh, business with Iran, even if they hate the Iranian government, uh, they still would like to make some money there. To your point, uh, something we've talked about here on this show as well uh, is the fact that one aspect of U.S. power that should never be underestimated is its sort of cultural hegemony, to use a term that Marxists like to throw around. Uh, cultural hegemony from the United States has things like soft power implications in a place like Iran, where the United States could consistently warmonger against the country and try to destroy its government for 40 plus years. And at the same time, uh, many of these sort of cultural uh, trends and, and, and views and things like that very much still derive from the United States or look to the West for inspiration. So there is sort of this dare I call it a dialectical kind of relationship between Iran, Iranian people and the U.S. and American culture. Well, yes. And then put on top of that, that there are so many Iranian Americans in the United States, uh, that so many Iranians, uh, even high up in the Iranian government, like the foreign minister, uh, got their higher education here in the United States. 
Uh, and so there are close ties. And it's very interesting now to see how uh, social media from the U.S. has been uh, such a, an important means for Iranians to communicate. I don't know how many of your listeners use Clubhouse or if you do, Eric, do you use Clubhouse? No, I only recently was told what it is. Well, Iranians use it to an astounding uh, degree. I think more than any other nationality, uh, Clubhouse has become the go-to place. And for any listeners who don't know what it is, um, it's a uh, it's an online um, audio way of talking to each other, um, and you can have huge numbers of people in your, quote, room. So Iranians have had up to 20,000 people. I mean, most of the time, the rooms in Clubhouse are like 100 people, 200 people. Iranians get huge numbers of people because uh, the foreign minister gets on and talks for hours to Iranians inside Iran all over the, the diaspora. And um, it's become a place for them to dialogue uh, that they uh, have never had really a chance to do that. So it's interesting what you call this, um, you know, the the, the cultural uh, imperialism has also provided some venues for Iranians to uh, meet across borders and have discussions that they have not been able to have inside their own country. One of the things in recent years that really uh, Code Pink and, and, and all of the work that you guys have done should be lauded for and remembered for is all of the interventions around the issue of Yemen, the U.S. support for the Saudi, uh, I wouldn't call it a war, I, I, I would say ongoing crime against humanity in Yemen, which is really what the Saudis have been perpetrating there for the last five years. Um, Given all of the work that you guys have done, all of the solidarity work and uh, and, and other things like that, and I'm sure you've developed uh, uh, relations with people, um, what is the latest in Yemen, not just vis-a-vis -vis the Biden administration and its policies, but what is the latest in terms of the reality in the country? It's heartbreaking. It was a poor country before 2015 when the Saudis decided to get involved in the internal conflict inside Yemen uh, that the Yemeni people would have resolved very well on their own as they have uh, throughout their history. Uh, but with the Saudi involvement and the tremendous weapons, thanks to the United States and the other uh, Western, quote, democracies, uh, the uh, it turned into a um, situation where uh, the basic infrastructure has been destroyed, the water systems, the hospitals, the clinics, the, uh, the, um, uh, the ports have been blockaded, so it's hard to get fuel in, it's hard to get humanitarian aid inside the country, uh, the uh, diseases have been rampant, uh, cholera, for example, and malnutrition among children is so horrific that there is a child di now dying every 75 seconds. So just think of that. How long have we been on this uh, podcast? Um, enough time for dozens of Iranian children to uh, die from the effects of this war. And the majority of the uh, destruction has come from 
the Saudi-led coalition, which includes the Emiratis, uh, includes other Gulf countries, uh, but has really been fueled by U.S. massive weapon sales, and not only weapon sales, but U.S. involvement in training and maintenance and logistical support. Uh, so we certainly have blood on our hands when it comes to our complicity in the, these attacks on Yemen. And one of the things about Yemen that often gets forgotten is that the United States was deeply and intimately involved in Yemen well before the Saudis started bombing it in 2015. Uh, during the Obama administration and even back in the Bush years, the CIA was intimately connected to some of the uh, uh, things going on on the ground in Yemen. The drone program really got off the ground with its uh, with its program in Yemen, famously the al-Laki assassination, among others. Others. So the U.S., the, the blood on the U.S. hands in Yemen didn't just begin in 2015. No, that's right. And thank you for bringing that up. Uh, I visited Yemen in 2013, and already at that point, uh, the U.S. drone strikes were extremely frequent, and I had the most heartbreaking meetings with family members who had lost loved ones to U.S. drone strikes. And for the most part, uh, they said that their family members were innocent, that they had been in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, I met a school teacher whose brother had been driving a taxi and picked up people who, you know, you don't know who you're picking up in a taxi. And uh, they were the target of a U.S. drone strike. His brother was killed, uh, incinerated. And this uh, teacher brought his two young children to show us that these children would never know their father, uh, lost the breadwinner of their family, left a young wife. Uh, and those are the kind of meetings we had, but we also had meetings with people who said that their uh, children were killed by the US in drone strikes. And yes, their children had joined Al Qaeda. Um, and why? Uh, because they, uh, the government was very repressive. It was a, a, a a dictatorial government that the U.S. had been supporting and that uh, a, a number of young people found that that was the only group that was opposing uh, their government. And so I was uh, in a meeting once in the home of a woman who had three children, all teenagers, I think like 18, uh, 19, and 21, all three of them killed by U.S. drone strikes. And she said something that will always stick with me. Is she said, don't you have gangs in your country um, where young people get caught up with the wrong group? And my sons got caught up with the wrong group, with Al-Qaeda. Uh, but we never expected that a foreign country like the United States would come in and kill them. What we expected is perhaps they would be captured and put into some kind of re-education program. Uh, that's what they needed, not to be killed by drone strikes. And so I met so many families that had no beef with the United States until the U.S. came in uh, to kill their family members. And then, of course, they hated the United States after that. Absolutely. Um, okay. In the limited time that we have, I want to just touch on a couple of other uh, items with you. One, you you kind of alluded to it earlier in a sense because you talked about uh, you know nuclear weapons, and uh, although you didn't use the phrase, I mean the the broader subject of weapons of mass destruction. Uh, and one of the weapons of mass destruction that I think is easy to forget about is the drone. 
because the drone has been sort of presented over the last 10, 15 years, certainly since the Bush administration first launched them in Pakistan and the Obama administration expanded them and Trump expanded them further. The idea that the drone is somehow this like precision instrument that is sanitizing war because it just it doesn't really cause so much collateral damage and on and on and on all that stuff. Right. But the reality is not only are they vicious uh, weapons of, uh, uh, you know, killing and crimes against humanity, but in fact, they are evolving. And now we're headed into a very dangerous period where not only are drones easily available to all kinds of state and non-state actors, but things like drone swarms, AI propelled drones and other things like that, that are going to fundamentally transform the nature of war. And so my question for you is, do we need to start thinking about drones as a weapon of mass destruction? And how do we go about doing that? Well, yes, I wrote a book about drones back in 2012 called Drone Warfare Killing by Remote Control because I was so appalled uh, at this uh, way that the U.S. was distancing itself in terms of making sure that U.S. soldiers uh, would not be uh, killed, but we would be uh, they could sit in air-conditioned room thousands of miles away and be targeting people by just pressing buttons. And uh, as you said, it's getting more and more sophisticated now uh, with swarms, with uh, getting closer to autonomous drones, uh, which don't need people to make those decisions. Uh, and, um, and then, uh, as I talked about in the book back in 2012, uh, you think the U.S. is going to be able to control this? Well, first of all, you have the companies uh, like General Atomics that want to sell their drones to anywhere they can around the world and will be pushing for that. And then secondly, um, you have a technology that's not like a nuclear weapon. It's not so sophisticated and can be copied by state and non-state actors. And so you see the U.S. now complaining about the drones that uh, Iran has uh, and that Iran is providing its uh, uh, um, allies with drones. Uh, and then you have drones that are in the hands of non-state actors uh, like Al-Qaeda or ISIS as well. So uh, this is a technology that is extremely dangerous and that is spreading so fast. Uh, and uh, we will not be able to control it because it is um, a technology that is easy to copy. Indeed. And we've just seen probably the first example in history, I think, of a war that was almost entirely won due to drones. And that was Azerbaijan's war against Armenia several months ago, where Azerbaijan, backed by Turkey and Erdogan, which provide a tremendous amount of weapons along with the Israelis, essentially won a war against Armenia with with, with very little soldiers even involved, at, you know, relatively speaking. So it's not only fundamentally transforming how how wars are prosecuted. It's transforming the very nature of war. Well, that's right. And, uh, and it's something that is going to become more and more difficult. And there's been a campaign by Amnesty and all kinds of groups to ban uh, autonomous weapons, meaning ones that uh, don't even have to have a human in the loop. Uh, but the U.S. as well as uh, other U.S. allies have been against such a thing. Uh, and so um, because we are uh, so uh, uh, promoting the um, 
the the weapons industry and the sale of U.S. weapons, um, we can't even get on board with a ban on the most sophisticated uh, uh, use of drones that is going to come back to haunt us. We're recording here on the evening of May 10th. It's Monday. Uh, one of the issues, you've already kind of touched on it a little bit, Medea, but one of the issues dominating my thinking and the thinking of a lot of people of our uh, you know, politics is what's going on in Palestine right now. A new, well, if you want to listen to corporate media, they would call it, what would they call it? Clashes, upsurge of violence, whatever you know, innocuous sounding phrase they might use. But again, I mean, the reality is that the Israeli state, the apartheid state of Israel, the fascist state of Israel, Israel is fundamentally uh, oppressing the, the Palestinian people in so many ways, and it is now again boiling over into violence. Can you give us your analysis of the recent events, but maybe more broadly, um, I guess the real question, because so much of this is already so well known, the real question is, Given what we have uh, going on in Palestine now, given the images that we've seen coming from there all over social media and so forth, are we in a period where there is a shift in the attitudes or thinking uh, around Palestine? And when I say a shift, is there potentially a shift in Washington? Is there a shift on uh, Main Street among regular people? Certainly, we've talked on this show about the very significant shift in attitudes toward Israel from millennials and Gen Z. So broadly speaking, are we in a period of transition about the Palestine issue? Yes, but is it enough and quick enough? And that is my uh, grave concern, because I think while the shift in this case is coming from the bottom up, uh, the last ones to shift are the people in Congress and um, to a lesser extent, the, the people in the White House, because I think um, we could potentially have some shift there. But um, the, if you look at the attitude of people in Congress, sure, we have uh, some good folks. You know, we have the uh, Rashida Tlaib, who is Palestinian herself. And uh, during these latest uh, attacks by Israel right now, we have condemnation coming from uh, the people in the squad, but also more moderates in Congress, like Chris Murphy, the senator. Um, but they are the minority. The vast majority in Congress are diehard Israeli uh, right-wing supporters, and they voted recently overwhelmingly to not condition U.S. aid, the three, I hate to call it aid, $3.8 billion that the U.S. allocates of our tax dollars every year, not to condition that uh, to anything. And you get progressives in Congress who voted along with that as well. Uh, So yes, things are shifting, uh, but they are shifting way too slowly. And we still have this tremendous influence of the Israeli lobby uh, in uh, among our elected officials uh, who are going to be clinging to this uh, uh, to the idea that Israel has a right to defend itself, uh, meaning they have a right to expand their settlements, demolish the homes of Palestinians, throw Palestinian children into military detention centers, uh, uh, um, uh, attack the Al-Aqsa Mosque, uh, and on and on. 
So I think the shift is uh, too slow to uh, save the lives of Palestinians. We've already seen 20 of them killed uh, just um, in this recent clash in, in, in Gaza. Uh, and I shouldn't call it clash. Um, yes, there are uh, weapons that Hamas and others in Gaza are uh, missiles that they launch towards Israel. And, you know, they always get accused of, of, um, uh, uh, of targeting civilians with those. And when I was um, in, a, in a meeting in Gaza, uh, they said to us, well, if we could have the sophisticated uh, precision uh, missiles that the United States uh, gives to Israel, we could target as well. Uh, Israeli IDF forces and other military forces. We don't have that. So we just, you know, throw our missiles and they land wherever they can land. Uh, in any case, it's it's too slow, the shift uh, for what needs to happen. And we know a two-state solution is uh, just impossible at this point. Doing this kind of work, many things often seem impossible. So my final question for you, Medea, is what advice, if any, would you give to any people particularly young people who might be listening to us who are actively interested in these issues, who want to uh, be involved, who want to not only make their voice heard, but actually affect some kind of change. Uh, how do you, I guess I don't really want to ask for advice for them, but more just how, what would you say to those people given the array of uh, challenges that we face some of which are related to war and imperialism, others climate change and rising fascism and all of these things that just seem so overwhelming and oftentimes can lead people to feeling somewhat depressed and despondent. Um, what advice do you have for those people or what would you say to them? Well, first I would say that we bear responsibility because as Americans, we have such a huge influence around the world and that having that responsibility means uh, it really is uh, incumbent upon us to be uh, doing work in solidarity with the people who are at the receiving end of our invasions, our occupations, our uh, corporate policies. So um, I once was I did a book on a Honduran woman who had been uh, captured on a, uh, by, by U.S. soldiers um, and uh, tortured. And she sa I said, you know, how do you keep going? And she said, uh, I don't have a choice and you shouldn't have a choice either. <laughs> so I take that to heart. Um, the other is that in doing this work, you meet some of the most fantastic, wonderful, inspiring people around the world who have the best moral compass is this, that can give you a lot of direction and uh, beautiful insights into what it means to be a uh, a real human being and have uh, a community that takes care of each other, looks out for each other, and wants to build a better and a brighter future. And while there are uh, the win, uh, the ability to win some of these issues is uh, difficult. Um, we do sometimes win. We do force our government to uh, get out of endless wars. Um, we do change U.S. policy, and we do see the world changing. Uh, we see progressive governments coming to power in places around the world that we uh, can support their movements. And um, so I would say that the work is very rewarding, and it feels like 
Um, the, the change comes slowly, but it is going to change. The U.S. is not going to remain an empire forever. Empires always come and go, uh, and this one will as well. Uh, and it's our job to shape how the end of the empire happens uh, so that not uh, that, that we can help to liberate people around the world from U.S. imperialism, but we can also help to liberate ourselves from the oppression of that kind of uh, government that thinks it has to dictate to um, people around the world and people at home how we should live. That's beautifully said. It's about liberation and it's about freeing people who are being oppressed. And I think that that is so critical. And I really do appreciate uh, the point you made about our responsibility, our meaning those of us in the United States and in the West broadly, our responsibility, because I do 100% agree. And that's exactly how I think about it as well. So uh, with that, Medea Benjamin, I want to thank you again uh, for coming on Counterpunch Radio and for all of the great work that you do. Medea Benjamin is on Twitter. Code Pink is the organization you definitely need to follow. Throw them a couple of bucks. Do what you got to do to support their work. Codepink.org is the website. Follow them there. Follow them on Twitter. Medea, thanks so much for coming and chatting with us. Thank you, Eric. It's been a great pleasure and a lot of fun. Listeners, thank you as always, and we will chat again next week.